Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Gessner. And I'm K.W. Taylor. And we are going to talk about Fly Girls, Lana Del Rey, and Heroes today. So, Carrie, you were reading a really interesting nonfiction book recently, weren't you? I was. Yes, why don't you tell us about that? Okay, it's called Fly Girls. How Five Daring Women Defied All Odds and Made Aviation History, which is a long title, but it's by Keith O'Brien, and it's about women pilots in the 20s and 30s, which was like the heyday of aviation. He focused on five women, Amelia Earhart, Louise Thaden, Florence Klingensmith, Ruth Elder, and Ruth Nichols. And I thought that was an interesting way to narrow the focus of the book because so much happened. It takes place over like a decade. They're going from the initial flights over the ocean to uh, Amelia Earhart's disappearance. I think it was in 1937. It's been a couple weeks since I listened to it. Uh, so the dates are fuzzy for me. Oh, and you listened to it on audio? Uh, yeah, I listened to it on, on audiobook. I was in the car for a long time one Sunday. And I listened to like five hours just in one go. And I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) Okay, so Keith O'Brien's whole premise, not premise, but um, methodology is that you can't celebrate the successes without honoring the failures too. So there are a lot of crashes that he talks about. And I (laughs) would just be in the car driving to work or whatever he, he would be talking, talking about the plane having, having trouble, trouble and then I would just be shouting. shouting. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I can't believe they're going to crash. And like, it must have been really weird for people to see me just like talking back to my audiobook. But it was, yeah, it was really emotional. And a lot of people died when aviation was getting off the ground. <laughs> um, that's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> Thank you. I love terrible puns. <laughs> Like Florence Klingensmith in particular, uh, she was pretty young. I think she was in her early 20s and she died during a race. Uh, they drew a lot of drew a lot of people and drew a lot of money, but for a long time only men could do it. And Florence Klingensmith was able to get into this. And then there were a couple different plane companies. It's very it's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but people were making planes and there were no real safety regulations and they kept trying to push boundaries. So they wanted to cross the ocean. They wanted to break speed records. They wanted to pl- break altitude records. But the planes couldn't always do that. Mm. So I think what happened to Florence Klingensmiths is the covering over one of her wings just ripped away and she went down. And what happened was the men were like, oh, this is proof that flying is too dangerous for women. And yeah, I know. It's, it's terrible. completely the mechanical. Whole- That's not related to her skill at all that could have happened to anybody exactly and it did happen to men too oh it was such a double standard and i got so angry i was fired up (laughs) for a while they had to do segregated races like only the women could do this one but eventually there was a big race sorry i can't remember the the title of it but louise faden and i think her co-pilot was ruth nichols they won it was a cross-country flight where they had to do different stops and they they beat all the men and that was kind of the moment that people were like oh hey okay women can fly that's cool so i've always been interested in planes for some reason 
not new planes, like older, <laughs> older planes. Yeah, yeah. So this was really a, up in my wheelhouse, and it was really cool to see how aviation started to take off. But oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> that was actually <laughs> accidental. <laughs> I was trying to stay away from the last one I did. <laughs> Out of the five names that I talked about that O'Brien focused on, obviously Amelia Earhart is the most recognizable. Yes. Because kind of a failure. She was going around the world and disappeared uh, along with her navigator. Yeah. And O'Brien talks a lot about how that failure. I hate to call it a failure because I mean she yeah, she also succeeded at other things she tried, right? She didn't she just did. yeah. Yeah, she, there was a whole 10 years of her being great at <laughs> at flying and breaking records and stuff before she attempted this. But yeah, she was the first woman who rode in an airplane over the ocean, over the Atlantic, and she didn't really get to do anything in that flight, so she was like, hey, that's 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 not cool, let's let's go. I want to pilot it. Yeah, so she did a lot of good things. She is most recognizable, unfortunately, for how she disappeared. And O'Brien talks a lot about how that actually overshadowed a lot of the previous decade and how all of these women accomplished so much, because we don't remember any of them, really. Yeah. And that's really sad. I had a really emotional reaction to the ending of the book because a couple of women, they just kind of had to stop flying. Like Louise Thaden, she married a guy who made airplanes, I think. Oh. And they lived in Pittsburgh for a little while, which was cool. And they had kids and she was like, you know what, I can't really, you know, cross the ocean when I've got kids because I might not come back. Yeah. So her career kind of petered out, and a lot of the other women, they found pretty big success and fame as aviators, but then it got overshadowed by Amelia Earhart, and then flying became more commercialized. So the the end of their lives and their careers, a lot of them, a couple of them, I won't say a lot, were kind of depressed, and one or two tried to commit suicide. Oh, wow. And they didn't have any money left because all the money was coming in from flying, but then that dried up. So yeah, it got it got really sad, and I really felt for them. So it was it was a, a roller coaster of a book because there were huge successes and very sad failures. Overall, I really enjoyed learning about the history of these women and of aviation. Cool. And what was the author's name again? Keith O'Brien. Keith O'Brien. Okay. Excellent. That sounds really good. Kathleen, I'm really interested in what you think about Lana Del Rey. I love Lana Del Rey. Love her. I've liked her a lot since her, I think it's technically her second album, Born to Die, from 2012. And she's gotten a lot more popular as she's continued her career. She's been really prolific for not starting recording a lot until, like, 2010 was when she released her first album that wasn't like a demo and she's already had like six or seven albums out since then she's got one planned for next year even though she just released one last month wow yeah she's just really really prolific and i haven't like loved every single album of hers born to die is still my favorite but like ultra violence is really good honeymoon honeymoon's really good Lust for Life is is pretty good. I like it a lot, but I haven't tended to listen to it a lot. And I haven't actually listened to all of the new one yet, but I'm looking forward to it. But I really wanted to discuss this new single that's kind of blowing up this summer, and it's called Doing Time. Have you actually heard this? 
I haven't. I should have listened to it. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. You have this to look forward to then. I I don't remember how I first heard this track was released. I think I just kind of stumbled upon that she had new music out on, on Spotify and listened to it and was like, wait a minute, this is a cover and it's so different than the original. So Lana Del Rey's style, for those of you who, who aren't familiar with her, is very, I would say, downbeat. She doesn't really ever do songs that aren't slow. <laughs> So she's not for everyone. Like, she's got a couple different vocal styles that she uses, but most of the time she has a very specific sort of, like, chanteuse. She's she's doing a lot of throwback stuff that blends several different genres, kind of old, almost slow jazz ballad style with, like, a trip-hop beat. Um, and she does a lot of her own production, too, so sometimes she's actually doing some of those background um, instrumentations as well. And her vocals, like, they're not the strongest in terms of volume or power of her voice, but it has a very evocative style, and it seems like you're back in time. So she's covering this song called Do in Time, which was originally by the, the Southern California ska band Sublime, and they recorded it in 1997, and it's a bunch of guys in that band. Sublime was a little bit of a more intense kind of no doubt where it was this kind of ska punk a little bit of hip-hop blend and the song do in time is itself a loose cover of summertime by george gershwin which is from the musical porgy and bess from 1935 and that musical was known for being one of the first representations of african-american life in the musical theater so this song is kind of layered with filters of of past times and different genres and it's it's kind of gone through all these different permutations and the other thing that's really weird and interesting is that sublime's lead singer died just before the album that featured their version of doing time was released and they actually had a bunch of hit singles from that album in the late 90s but they were all actually posthumous and the band even broke up as soon as their lead singer died so the really eerie weird thing about this song is that like lana del rey's aesthetic is is kind of California noir meets David Lynch, and it's very spooky and creepy and weird and surreal. And so all of her music kind of has this fatalistic air about it. And again, it's downbeat. It's it's slower than the original. And so what I like to think of is the fact that this original song was already kind of a ghost when it was released. And so she's, you know, the spooky chick. And so she's reinterpreting it as even more spooky and ethereal and weird. And it just it just makes it even more creepy. And she herself is a big Sublime fan and has said in interviews, like, not a day goes by that I don't listen to Sublime. And so for her, I think it was a very reverential thing to cover, you know, this song by this band she really liked. And it was actually originally done for a documentary coming out on Sublime. And then she put it on her new record. So I just think it's really, really beautiful. And it's also kind of strange to listen to this, you know, young woman singing about essentially like gang life amongst a bunch of guys in SoCal. And yet when you think about gang life or something like women do have participation in that. And I mean, she's a bit of a poser in that regard, like she's not actually involved in gang life. But it's just if you think of music as also being another form of narrativity, she's telling a story and she's just reinterpreting this story from the point of view of some, you know, young woman that's involved in that life. And it's just really interesting. And it's pretty beautiful and weird. And I, I haven't watched all of the music video, but I did see a little clip of it. And even that has that kind of throwback retro style to it. I'm looking forward to listening to the whole album. So I really dig it. That is super interesting. A little creepy. Yeah, it's a little creepy, but... I'm excited to listen to it. I'm a little creepy, so... 
<laughs> yeah, creepy is good. Creepy can be really interesting. So, but I'm gonna put that on my list and give it a listen. Cool. So, thank you. You're welcome. All right, now we're on to heroes. We want to periodically rewatch or watch for the first time in the pilot episode of a slightly older show. And so the first one that we've chosen was Heroes, which aired originally on NBC from 2006 to 2010. And something funny that I found out just as we were preparing this episode, the original pilot actually aired exactly 13 years ago today as we were recording this. Which is neat. Which is neat. And we didn't know that. We just, I just found that out this morning. So. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So in case you've never watched Heroes, this show is a science fiction superhero show. And the basic premise is that all of a sudden, people all around the world develop a variety of different types of supernatural abilities. Yeah. So let's kind of discuss what happens in the pilot. So it starts with a scrolling intro that basically says what Kathleen just said. People are getting abilities, and they don't know it yet. And the first scene is a man who we will come to know as Peter. He's on top of a building, and he jumps off. And then it turns out he's it's a dream. He wakes up at his job, which is a home nurse, and that becomes a little bit important later. And then we skip to Mohinder, who is lecturing his class about cosmic things like man's narcissism and that god is a cockroach that i that's a direct quote (laughs) um then he learns that his dad dies and he's very insistent that it's because of his dad's research somehow yeah and then we we move to um a totally different character this this young woman um she's blonde we later find out that her name is nikki and she's a webcam girl and she's doing a striptease for a customer and then she starts to hear voices or she gets kind of freaked out about something kind of following her in her house um she has a very young son and we just kind of see her moving about her life but you know that there's something kind of weird about something that she's sensing then we move to one of our main characters um is a cheerleader a high school cheerleader we find out her name is claire and she has her friend videotape her jumping off of a tower and when she gets up she's completely unhurt And then we go back to Peter and are introduced to his brother, Nathan, who is running for Congress. And Peter's trying to convince Nathan that his dreams mean that he can fly, and Nathan rejects that. Then we're introduced to Hero, who is sitting at his job in an office building, kind of staring at a clock. And he makes the clock go back a second, and he gets really excited and goes to tell his friend, who doesn't believe him. And then we go back to Nikki. Her son's name is Micah. She's at Micah's school. It's a private school because he's really smart, and they're telling her that she's behind on payments, and we find out that she had to make a $25,000 donation to get him into the school, and that's money that we find out a little bit later was borrowed from the mob. Okay, and then we move back to Peter and his brother Nathan. Um, Their mother has gotten arrested for shoplifting. The mom and Peter talk about his strained relationship with Nathan. Peter reveals through this conversation that he knew he knew that Nathan had been in some kind of an accident even before he got the news that he'd been in the accident and so he feels like they have some kind of bond or special connection even though they're a little bit estranged emotionally we go back to Nikki and she's still worried that someone that she can't see is following her and then this is a really dramatic moment that Claire and her friend come across a house that's on fire Claire decides to go inside and makes her friend videotape it Um, She saves this guy from this house. 
and the firefighters are confused as to why she doesn't have any burns, but she runs away. We switch back to Mohinder. Mohinder had been in India before, but he goes to New York City where his father had been living and working as a cab driver. He goes to his dad's apartment and he finds a tape labeled Siler, which that will actually become really important in the rest of the series. Not so much in this episode, though. We then switch to a guy in New York City um, who's a painter, and he's convinced that his paintings are evil because when he paints something, it comes true. Um, he saw a suicide bus bombing in Israel, for example, and painted that. And he recognizes the fire that Claire ran into. And then we jump back to Nathan and Peter. Nathan's trying to cover up his mom's shoplifting record. And he decides to hire Peter as a volunteer coordinator to kind of give his campaign some goodwill, I think. Peter then, after that conversation, gets into a cab and it turns out to be Mohinder's cab. Oh, this is important. There's an eclipse going on and Mohinder and Peter they have this conversation about destiny and being special and natural selection and Mohinder says the eclipse is a global event that makes us realize how small the world is and that is reflected because two of our main characters are meeting unexpectedly and then we switch back to Nikki some mob guys break into her house and they are trying to collect her debt which they suddenly up with a different amount that she's like saying that that's not what we agreed on. They try to make her strip to take away some of the debt and then they beat her up. And then we switch back to Hiro and his friend Ando. They, by the way, I don't know that we mentioned that they're in Japan. And so all their dialogue is subtitled. They are in a karaoke bar and Ando suggests that if Hiro really can teleport and shift time and stuff, that why doesn't he teleport into the women's bathroom? And Hiro is like, I don't use my powers for personal gain. We switch back to Nikki, who wakes up to hearing her answering machine click on, and she's got a message from her son saying to come pick her up from, pick him up from uh, her friend's house that he's tired of being there. And she looks around at this room where she does her webcam stuff, and she's actually killed the mafia guys. Um, she doesn't remember it, but it's all on videotape because they first had her trying to strip for them. Oh, and I don't think we mentioned that when Mohinder was in his dad's apartment, there was a creepy guy there that Mohinder didn't see, but the audience sees like the back of his head and he has these very distinctive horn-rimmed glasses. Well, the man with the glasses actually gets in Mohinder's cab and starts to talk to Mohinder about his father because he recognizes Mohinder's last name on the cabbie license. And Mohinder starts getting freaked out. This man might be that guy from the apartment because he recognizes his voice and he just like like he pulls the cab off into an alley and then leaps out of it and runs away which i thought at the moment was a little extreme but whatever yeah, yeah. a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> then we jump back to claire who's home at her parents house they're sitting down at the dinner table with her mom her brother and her mom mentions that her dad's not home yet um and her mom asks her if she did anything special today and claire answers <laughs> I walked through fire and didn't get burned. And her mom just doesn't get it. She's like, oh, what a great metaphor, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was sweet of the mom. Like, because the mom's not going to think you literally did that. She's going to think we yeah. all struggle with things and oh, good for you. It was really. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And then we jump back to Japan and Hiro and Ando are, are arguing. And Ando says, why, why do you want to be different? And Hiro says, why do you want to be the same? And then we jump back to New York City where Isaac... Is her, his girlfriend named Simone? Yes, yes. And Simone, okay. Simone's the the 
daughter of the guy that Peter is taking care of as a home right. nurse. And Isaac is a recovering drug addict, and Simone thinks that Isaac has taken her dad's morphine. Claire lives in Texas, and we go back to Claire, and she says something to her mom about wanting to know about her real parents that she's adopted. And then that kind of, that conversation, oh, she also, like, she accidentally drops her class ring down the sink. While oh, the yeah. while this this scene haunts me even now, okay? <laughs> she drops her class ring down the sink while she's doing dishes and the garbage disposal is on, and she just reaches in and gets her ring, but she mangles the heck out of her hand, and it's yeah, so it's gross. Ugh. And it, but it heals almost immediately. Ugh. I can't. Whenever I'm whenever I'm doing dishes or doing the garbage disposal, I'm always like, everybody's hands clear, and it's totally because <laughs> of that scene. It just it creeps me out. Anyway, her dad comes home from his business trip. And it's the horn-rimmed glasses guy. And it's, ah! Ah! and um, that's such a huge reveal at the time. So we jump back to Hero, and he's on the train, and he looks kind of bored and sad. And time speeds up while he's standing there. And he'd been looking at a poster that says, Visit New York City. And he'd been looking at it and looking at it. And then suddenly he's in the middle of Times Square, which is just crazy. We jump back to, well, now I guess we're not jumping back because we are in New York City. But Isaac has overdosed, and Peter and Simone are in Isaac's apartment um, trying to help him. And Peter finds a painting that Isaac has made of him flying. And Isaac kind of comes around from his overdose and mutters that we have to stop it. We then get a voiceover from Mohinder saying, This quest, this, this need to solve life's mysteries, in the end, what does it matter when the human heart can only find meaning in the smallest of moments? They're here among us in the shadows and the light everywhere. Do they even know yet? Which is really beautiful and spooky and lots of foreshadowing there. And then Peter is now really, really convinced that he has something special. He's really convinced that he can fly. He just feels it. But we see Nathan showing up in an alley on the phone with Peter. And he looks up and Peter is actually on the top of a building standing there. And Peter says, it's my turn to be somebody now. And Peter jumps off the building. But the big, the big twist that I remember when I first saw this, I was like, oh my gosh, is that Nathan flies up to catch him. Peter actually could not fly in that moment, but it's Nathan who could fly all along. And I do I do think that, yeah, the CGI was not real great in that moment. I don't remember it being that bad. Peter starts to fall. He starts to slip away from Nathan's grasp. Nathan, Nathan is flying, but he also doesn't seem like he's real good at it, at least not yet. And he kind of fumbles with trying to keep Peter in his grasp, and he starts to fall. And then the episode ends with To Be Continued. What did you think? Um, okay, so I actually watched this in two chunks. I watched part the first half one day and the second half earlier today. And I actually really liked the second half better than the first half. I thought the first half, it felt kind of draggy. It felt like there was just so much exposition and setup. Some of the characters that I later really liked, I had forgotten that they weren't even in the first episode. Like, I really liked Matt, the cop character, and he wasn't even, okay. he wasn't even in it. I really liked the Petrelli family. But there was a lot on Simone and Isaac, and they don't end up being really major characters later. So that was kind of, that felt kind of annoying to me. But there were some things I liked. I loved the music. I had forgotten how beautiful, evocative, and strange the music was. The music's so spooky. It's very spooky, yeah. And other than the bad CGI moment at the very end, I thought mostly <laughs> the visuals held up and were still pretty strong. So what did yeah. you think? What did you think? I thought it was okay. Like you said, it's a little slow. There's a lot of exposition. And that's okay, because there are a ton of characters to get through, and you have to introduce them all. If I were watching it now, I think 
think I might have given it an, another episode or two, but the pilot would not have hooked for sure. I did like the comic booky stuff. Like at the beginning, it says it's chapter one, and then at the end, it says to be continued, and it's all in kind of comic book script. And I thought that was a nice little, nice little tie-in to the, to the genre. Well, and and um, two other comic book elements that were tying it into that was Isaac is actually a comic book artist. He's not just a painter, and he actually draws a comic book called Ninth Wonders that we see Micah reading at one point. Oh, that's yeah. cool. So even though Isaac is painting these very apocalyptic paintings, it's still in a little bit of a comic book style. And then the other thing is that when they show Ando and Hero talking and they have the subtitles on, they're not traditional down at the bottom subtitles. They're positioned as if they're where you would put dialogue bubbles in a comic book. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I, I was kind of wondering why they didn't do the bottom, but yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think they were also doing it for readability. They made the lettering a lot bigger because they do have a lot of this subtitle dialogue. And it really, I liked that. It made it for better readability. Yeah, definitely. I did like Hero. I tend to gravitate toward heroes who are just moral and good. And Hero's very much that kind of guy. Um, And I think it's because it's just a reaction to the plethora of anti-heroes we've had recently. Yes, yes. I didn't really love, well, I did. I really didn't love how Nikki was introduced. Yeah, I had forgotten that. Yeah, we the first time we see the first major female character, she's stripping. Yeah. You know, sex work is a legitimate job, and that's fine. And she does have a story that unfolds, and she does a lot more with her life. But it's also, it's a little cliche to have this Vegas showgirl, essentially adjacent kind of job. And she's portrayed as being very traditionally attractive and all this. And it just felt a little, um, I mean, our other main female character is a blonde cheerleader, too. So even and Nikki's blonde, too. And even though we end up subverting a lot of these tropes about both of them, they both have really rich storylines through the series. But it's also like, wow, could we even could we be more cliche with our female characters so right yeah and especially i i got really uncomfortable with the scene where the mob guys come to collect their money and they make nikki strip basically yeah Yeah. and then then they start to beat her up it just felt really gross and i i know there was a point to it because it kind of leads into her figuring out what her powers are but the whole scene i was uncomfortable yeah yeah yep but okay so if you yeah, if you were watching this now, you would give it a couple more episodes. I think I would too. I also think that if they were making this now, that it would not be quite so sprawling a cast. And it would probably have a little bit less exposition in that first episode. I think the part of the story that's interesting is letting it unfold a little bit more naturally and not giving us so many info dumps in that first episode. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I also really like Mohinder and I kind of, I'm not going to lie, I kind of based a character in one of my novels on him. I can see that. (laughs) (laughs) He's totally Ben. And also that actor, the guy who plays Mohinder, is not Indian or British or anything in real life. Wait, he's not? No, he's not. He's American. He's from California, I'm pretty sure. He has a very surfer guy. He's Indian, uh, but he's Indian American. (laughs) His accent is is a sort of mushy Indian slash English accent, which gets more English as the series goes on. And yeah, he's not from India. He's American. So, but I really, I really like him. I remember really liking him throughout the series too. Yeah. And this was the first time that I saw Milo Ventimiglia and I 
used to think he was pretty cute. And I watched This Is Us, and it's very weird to see him maturing into another kind of role. And he almost, he has started to look more like the guy who plays his brother on Heroes now, as he's gotten oh, really? older, I think. Adrian Pastar plays Nathan. And I, I wonder, if, without researching it, I wonder if Milo is now the age that Adrian was when Heroes started. But they were very well cast playing brothers because they do look a lot alike, I think. But yeah, no Matt Parkman. Matt Parkman, played by Greg Grunberg, was one of my favorite characters. And he I didn't realize he didn't appear for a while. And then we also don't see Siler, who is the series kind of major villain who later becomes a little bit less villainous. But the main villain in this first episode is that horn-rimmed glasses guy whose name we don't even learn early yeah. on. I think he does get a name later, but yeah. Yeah, he does. Okay. So I think people should maybe check it out. It's it's streaming for free on IMBD TV, and you get access to that with Amazon Prime, but I think it's also available free. It's free with commercials. It's free with commercials. The commercials were not too excessive. I've watched no. stuff on there before, and it's really, it's even less excessive than Hulu. But it was good. I just, I don't think I'm going to do a rewatch, though. Same. Yeah. <laughs> but it was fun. It was fun. To... It was fun. I don't remember a lot about it, actually. Like, you seem to remember a lot more than I do. Well, I more recently decided to try to watch the final season that I didn't see because I kind of checked out. And Uh, that was just a couple years ago, and I did not even finish that. So I think that the first season really holds up as kind of a pretty good self-contained story. So if you're curious and you've never watched Heroes, just watch season one and then say, okay, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Just pretend it didn't keep going. Pretty much. It was a huge hit. That's important to point out. It was a huge hit when it was first on. Do you think it, not spawned, but was kind of a little bit responsible for more genre shows? Absolutely. Well, in itself, and they even referenced the the X-Men in the show, it was clearly influenced by the X-Men. And I think that we were just at a point in terms of pop culture media in the late 90s, early aughts, and then getting into the current decade where... We have just collectively become really interested in superhero media, but this definitely helped give it a little bit of a more artistic flair because it does have a little bit of a, it has the air of a show like Sense8 or the OA where you feel like it's, there's an artistic sensibility to its cinematography and its storytelling. And I think that this was what brought that sort of design. And it's right around the same time. I'm not sure how close in time it was to The Dark Knight and the Christopher Nolan Batman films, but I think they were of a type, you know, the slightly yeah. darker, grittier superhero genre. Yeah. I think they were pretty much the same. Yeah, Batman Begins was 2005. Okay, yeah. So I think they're they're very influenced by each other. And the thing that's weird is that um, the creator, Tim Kring, he had not really done a lot of superhero stuff before this, and he was best known for making kind of procedural medical and police procedural shows like Chicago Hope and Crossing Jordan. And really, here the Heroes series, because there's more than one Heroes show, was kind of his big entry into that genre. And I think he was pretty decent at it, honestly. Cool. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so what are we going to talk about next time, Carrie? Next time we're going to do the Netflix limited series, Unbelievable. Kathleen's going to do a fringe rewatch, and we'll have some fun mystery topics. That's right. So thanks for listening. Our music is by Joseph McDade. And Carrie, where can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Carrie Gessner. And you can find me on Twitter at KW Taylor Writer. 
And you can email us if you'd like at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. Pop.